So um, that's about, what is that? Two and a half kilograms of uh, food per day. It's pretty intensive, but these guys did eat a lot and, and they probably ate as much as they trained. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. We have on again our friend Philip from the YouTube channel Historia Militum, and we discuss gladiator diet, health, training, and competition. Let's give it a listen. How would they win when they wouldn't kill each other? Like like the Retriarius, and I'm butchering that, sorry, but mm-hmm. when he would throw the net over... And like with the trident, how would he be deemed as the winner? Like how, yes. how, how, how would they not kill each other, but still win is. My yeah. Opinion. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, so um, gladiator combats, every, every battle between two gladiators would have a referee who is often left out in, in all Hollywood depictions of gladiators. Uh, but they did have a referee who would call a stop or he would sometimes interfere the match and say, okay, this, this, this guy's beaten you, you win. So he would step in and, and end the violence and the last um, moment um, fairly early on. Um, and it was his job to save the lives of the gladiators and also make sure no one cheated or, or threw any fouls or, or, or fake not allowed moves. But so what the gladiators would do, and, and this is interesting because they were made to be um, optimal in every single way to their profession. And their profession was to entertain and to, you know, get people in the audience to just like cheer and, and just witness something that they've never seen before. So everything the gladiators had was like built for optimal performance in that specific goal. So first of all, they were purposely fed a lot so that they would get fatter. And um, because they were fatter, it actually reduced the amount of lethal wounds they could uh, receive. Because if someone is skinnier, um, they get cut across the chest or literally anywhere. Uh, it's very likely you would sever an artery or a vein or something, and then the bleeding would be pretty severe. But uh, this layer of fat, which uh, people who are fatter actually have, it, it protects a lot of the organs and uh, slight cuts on it. And, and the gladiators knew this. They, they knew that, okay, I'm fighting this guy, but I'm not to kill him. So I'm going to scratch him here and there and everything. And I actually looked this up. This is um, <laughs> probably one of the strangest things in my search history. But uh, do people bleed more when they are fatter? And apparently, yes. If you carry more, um, more fat on you, you carry also more blood. And if you are to cut someone who is leaner and someone who is fatter, uh, the one who is fatter would release a lot more blood. And, and well, the Roman, the, the, um, it would be much easier for spectators to see, okay, he, he, he's, he's hurt. Um, he got hurt. He got, he got hit right there. So it was kind of a marker. And the gladiators themselves, they would be fighting to kind of like um, lightly injure. But obviously, this was very dangerous. And many times they did actually unintentionally or sometimes intentionally inflict fatal blows, which ended up killing gladiators. But what we find is that a lot of the gravestones that the gladiators made for themselves after their deaths, um, their last words are interestingly either boasting that they saved a lot of people in the arena, which is weird. Like, how do you save another gladiator? But we think what that means is um, they had the chance to kill them, but they did not. Or um, maybe it was 
up to their decision, like the, the audience gave them the decision, okay, kill him or spare him. And, and they, they chose not to, but it was something there that they were bragging of this like sportsmanship that they had an opportunity to kill someone, but they chose not to. Oh yeah. There was actually an interesting gravestone that actually blamed for the death of a gladiator, not his opponents, but the referee. He said, um, who killed me was the referee, not the, um, n- not my opponent. And what we can tell from that is probably, you know, he was already beaten. He was already maybe submitting or something. And, uh, the, the referee didn't call it in time. And the opposing gladiator, well, you can't just stand there, right? If the referee says, okay, keep going, or he doesn't say anything, you have to keep up the fight basically so he probably kept up i don't know like um stabbing him or something and then he ended up dying so uh, that gladiator who died and and the friends who made his gravestone actually blamed the referee instead of the opponent so there was a like a very like kind of sportsmanship culture that the gladiators had and it's almost like um solidarity towards each other you know like yeah i'm a gladiator you are too i'm gonna spare your life in hopes that you know one day when you have a situation when you have the option to kill me maybe you'll spare me too so there was kind of that but like like in all sports there were also outliers to that rule so there were some people who you know they were like i don't care if i have a chance i'm gonna i'm gonna kill a gladiator in front of me and then but those guys were more likely to be disliked by other gladiators and when those gladiators you know had a chance to kill him they would they would probably do that so um there was a lot of like this back and forth tension between the gladiators as well and um it it is it is hard for them to sort of win without killing but the way you would win was to inflict wounds um non-lethal wounds enough of them for for your opponent to either like lay flat on the ground or give up or um submit um, offer like that he surrenders so all those kind of things were were done but um, another interesting thing is that um, this is to correct myself when I said that gladiators didn't kill as much as we thought this was true depending on the location and the um, organizers of the event so if we're if we take for example a, a small city somewhere um, in northern Gaul where you know it's just a, it's just a competition and and the Lanistas are bringing out their gladiators and they don't have a lot of gladiators to begin with, um, but they're fighting and it's kind of a more budget game. They would um, they would tell their gladiators, like, don't kill each other. This is a this is a friendly competition just for the just for the arena, because honestly, buying, purchasing a gladiator and then feeding him, training him, um, providing medical equipment um, and, and assistance was very expensive for Lanistas. It was it was it was a business for them. And that was the, the worst expense to have to buy and train another gladiator. So it was not done among um, Lanistas who were uh, less well off. But the other extreme of this situation would be the Colosseum in Rome, um, which was most of the time funded by, well, all of the time, I'd say, was funded by the emperors of Rome who had money, you know, just to throw around. And the, and the emperors themselves had their own personal gladiators who would be there. And as you could probably imagine, um, em- an emperor would be l- like, he would care a lot less about uh, if my gladiator dies or lives, you know, I'll just buy, you know, a hundred more the, the next week. So being a gladiator under an emperor was... Um, your chances of surviving were a lot less and emperors tended to also show show off their wealth by making gladiator fights more often than not uh, be to the death in the in the Colosseum just because they could afford it um, whereas um, 
everywhere else outside of Rome, it was far, far less likely that a gladiators would kill each other to the death. So if you're a if you're a gladiator under an emperor, you're in you're in serious trouble. <laughs> the fatter you are, the more you bleed comment is very interesting because and and you were saying that they would still be taken care of with medicine, I'm guessing after they would, you know, stitch them up or whatever they did back in the yeah. day and and help them heal. But man, I mean, that is, that is truly like you are committed if that is your job getting cut up and stabbed, but not to the death. And then you have to go recover. Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, um, and actually one more thing about the medical care, which you brought up, um, it was absolutely state of the art. Like the best doctors would be, would be those treating gladiators because lanistas would go the extra mile and pay a bit more for a very qualified doctor to treat and heal their, you know, prized possession, their, their, their gladiators, rather than having to purchase someone else and then train them for years and then um, perform and get them up to the scale. They could commit a good amount of money towards medical care. And, um, like like I said before, there's another thing why people would volunteer to, to to become a gladiator because like regular people would be nowhere near to affording this kind of medical attention. Um, and just just as an example, there's a famous philosopher and uh, physician and also writer called Galen. He he was a Roman um, a surgeon who wrote wrote several books that survive to this day. But he um, started off his career as a surgeon and doctor of, of gladiators. He served, uh, um, you know, he, he revived a lot of gladiators in his day. Um, and then his, he, he worked up to be the, the well, one of the most important physicians of a, of a Roman emperor. So that just tells you how, you know, how important uh, gladiator treatment was that the next thing he, he treated to was the emperor himself. Yeah, very, very interesting. And 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 um, the the tools and equipment that these physicians would use would be uh, far beyond their time. So um, they would have all sorts of like scalpels, all sorts of uh, techniques, um, curing um, muscle muscle tears, even and even uh, from from looking at bone remains, we can see that they also even uh, healed fractures in the skull in in um, certain certain parts in the hands and the legs. It was pretty impressive what these guys could do. And very interestingly enough, um, after Rome's collapse, a lot of these techniques just vanished to time. So during the Middle Ages, they even kind of forgot about all the surgical equipment and and um, this whole profession of being a surgeon and a medical doctor. And, and like to this degree, it was not even done in the Middle Ages. So we kind of like took a little dip after Rome's collapse in the medical field and then we had to sort of reinvent all this again closer much closer to our um, modern period so um yeah gladiators all had access to this kind of stuff um as as professional athletes what i find interesting in this conversation is all the similarities between gladiators and modern day athletes right because modern day athletes they have this best doctors and medical care and money and everything like that i mean 
it just, yeah, it's, I just find that similarity interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's almost like also um, it's as if they um, like the Lenistas were reading racehorses. And then that was another thing that was done back in the day, but it was very similar that they had to select a healthy specimen, make sure he was raised right, make sure he had healthy teeth and whatever, and then feed him a good diet and then um, train him. And if he, you know, if, if he injures himself, hire the best doctors and then like go back out there. Um, and Lenisa's made a lot of money from the arena, like, right? Like if, if each person paid a little, a little um, amount, um, it, it surmounted to a big amount because you have hundreds or even thousands or tens of thousands of people watching. So it was, it was a big profit and um, very, very big industry. What were the conditions like for gladiators in training schools? And what are the training schools called? But with these with these training conditions specifically, when they're trying not to cut each other, because you were talking about these linistas and they would invest in their training and stuff. What was what was that training? Yeah, so um, they had a very interesting training schedule, which was actually der- derived from Greek Olympians. So the Greek um, Olympic athletes practiced this. Um, a century or or two before the gladiators um, were given this exact training schedule. And what it was called was the tetrad or like four day schedule, essentially. So um, it consisted of uh, day one, which was preparatory exercises. So things like all sorts of activities to prepare your body for the next day, things like cardio, some light intensity runs, jogs, um, agility um, exercises that was all on day one. And then on day two, they would wake up um, feeling like their body was more ready for um, a more severe load. And that's when they uh, practiced uh, more intense workouts. That was day two. So uh, they went really exhaustive, strenuous, and really gave it like 120% um, with all their workouts, runs. Um, they were up like from sundown, to, uh, sun up to sundown on this. So day two, they went completely out. Um, and then day three was completely uh, rest and recovery. So maybe some light cardio, um, no intensity at all. They completely rested on on the third day and and allowed their muscles uh, a lot of time to heal. And then lastly, day four, they have it written as auxiliary workouts. But what I believe this is, is uh, they worked on any weaknesses they have left um, or maybe any other muscles that um, aren't uh, sore. So if like part of your body isn't feeling that as isn't, isn't feeling as sore as the rest, you would practice that. And then it would go back to day one. So preparatory again, uh, intensive rest, and then auxiliary. So that was the four day schedule, four day workout plan. Um, probably one of the oldest that we know of that they stuck to and um, they achieved pretty impressive uh, results. They were able to build a very impressive um, amount of muscle. And we can tell that from the bone fragments, uh, which is actually very interesting how we could, how we, how, how we do that. So um, there's a specific bone fragment that I was looking up for when I was writing the video. And that was the, I believe the collarbone or, or one of the, one of the bones where um, a neck muscle, whether it was the um, trapezius uh, muscle or some other neck muscle, I'm not too sure, but I read about it that um, when the, when, when you have any muscle attached to a bone, it's, it's attached through tendons to a bone. And what it does, that muscle is through time, through the years of your life, it kind of pulls a bit on, on your muscle every time you flex it. And depending on how big it is, that would depend on how much it pulled on your bones. Um, and what we 
can see from these bones is that in that area where the tendon was attached, there would be slight bumps on it. And um, depending on the size and the quantity of these bumps, you could um, have a good estimate of how big the muscle there would be for to 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 pull that amount. And just for just for reference, in our example that I used in the video, a regular person has like one bump on the muscle that are that attaches to this neck muscle. But uh, a gladiator was found to have four bumps at that very location where a regular person would have one. So that tells you the muscle would be around four times larger than, than, than a normal one. So you could tell they were really heavy in the neck and the traps and, and you, and you could see why, right? Like the helmets they carried uh, for hours per day were absolutely like absolutely strenuous. You know, they would be sweating. They had to lift it, dodge and move their head constantly. That would be like a constant neck workout for you. And uh, the like, just from the bone remains, we could see it was um, very, very impressive. Um, another thing we could see from the bone remains is that they were predominantly vegetarian, which is another thing that surprised many people. Um, how can these, you know, big guys, um, they were muscular, well, not as muscular as you would assume, like bodybuilders or anything, it was just enough uh, muscular definition to achieve optimal performance in the arena. So it was kind of like a balance between muscle and, and fat. But still, the um, the sheer fact that they were able to put on this much mass and even like store so much of it in fat, disregarding the fact that they were up and exercising and doing cardio like all day was pretty impressive. And they did this on a vegetarian um, diet. I believe it was strontium that they... Um, identified in their bones. So what they did was they um, cut up a bone and they put some fire to it. Um, I think it was a lighter or something. I just watched this um, experiment. And they said if it turned green, that would mean that there's a high level of strontium in the in the in the bone. And actually, plants contain a lot amount of uh, a lot more of strontium than animal tissue. So when they burnt it, the, the flame went completely green, which indicated a huge amount of strontium. So they were pretty they were predominantly um, vegetarians. I wonder what was their diet being vegetarian. You know what I mean? Like back in yeah. Rome. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, their diet was was kind of similar and kind of different to, to what we have now. Um, vegetables um, and fruits in general were kind of much smaller than they are now. Now we have um, a lot of genetically modified fruits and, and a lot of ones that were like bred to be larger. But back in the day, a lot of the vegetables we wouldn't even recognize they were like much smaller. Um, no, but what the gladiators used to build up this much of calories because it really was just like calories they didn't focus that much at like getting all their vitamins in and everything if they even understood what that is um it was just like calories um and what worked for them was barley and the gladiators were nicknamed uh hordiari which means barley eaters so <laughs> that's what people would call them because um they would eat barley and um i don't know if you've ever tried uh, barley before have you yes yes yeah it's it's um it's it's kind of bland. I, I don't know about you, but I I prefer rice a lot more than barley. But um, nutritionally, it has a lot more than than rice in in, in many ways. Um, but also, like it's it's not really appetizing, at least at least to, for for my taste buds. So uh, what they would do also is they would combine it with beans, um, all sorts of vegetables, um, legumes, um, yeah, everything really they could find. 
um, or or that would be left over or that their lanista would bring to them. Um, and they would make uh, sort of like a porridge or a stew, something like that. And it would be surprisingly good you know, with with the vegetables, just just enough to um, keep them um, keep keep the food from being completely terrible um, and and from them getting bored of it, but they could consume an, a very impressive amount of it. And we just did um, just like a practice uh, calculation in our in our video uh, based on modern athletes as well, because uh, we researched this and some modern athletes, like those that are like top of their game and training from um, sunrise to sunset, just as the gladiators did, uh, burn around five to 6,000 calories a day. These are people who are really lean, just like, yeah, top of top of the game athletes that, uh, that, that we all know of. So um, we just thought if, if those were the numbers that people are doing right now, it would be very similar for gladiators. And, and some, some modern athletes even go as far as 10,000 calories a day. And I, I can't even fathom how that is even possible, but the, the studies are there. So gladiators would be very similar. But the difference with gladiators from modern athletes would be that modern athletes that burn this much calories and that eat this much, they're, they're still pretty lean. So they don't force themselves to overeat um, to the extent that the body puts out, puts out fat. But the gladiators would have, because uh, let's not forget, having fat was um, literally a matter of surviving in the arena, right? So they would force eat themselves very most likely. And on top of their already very calorie intensive workouts to actually force the body to not only burn all these calories, but also put on a lot of calories and fat it was absolutely insane. And we estimated something like, um, I don't know, 6,000 calories they would probably have to eat in these stuff, which um, could seem pretty um, insane. But we calculated it in terms of um, some foods and we got an amount of, um, so it would have to be like, um, one second, let me get the numbers up. Um, yeah, it came down to about a kilogram of barley, uh, 700 grams of broad beans, 400 grams of lettuce or cabbage, and about 300 grams of fruit. So um, that's about, what is that, two and a half kilograms of uh, food per day. It's pretty intensive, but these guys did eat a lot, and, and they probably ate as much as they trained. So yeah, very, very impressive stuff. And, and I don't think there was any other profession or, or sport really coming similar to gladiators, maybe like sumo wrestlers kind of, but, but those take it to the whole new level. It would, it would be something probably in between of an MMA fighter and a sumo wrestler. That was what their diet looked like. We're going to end it there. Men, if you want to learn more about gladiators, go and check out Philip's YouTube channel. It's called Historia Militum. There is much, much more than just gladiators on his channel. It is very educational. Go check it out. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Philip for coming on. And until next time.